the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. So grab a cigar, maybe a glass of rum if you like that, because we're going to go to Cuba where the United States has abandoned its failed 70-year policy of trying to isolate the Castro government. Today, our in-depth interview is with Tom Hayden, an American revolutionary who authored the Port Huron Statement, helped start the Students for a Democratic Society, was one of the defendants in the infamous Chicago 8 trial, went on to join Jane Fonda, who later became his wife, uh, protesting our war by visiting North Vietnam. He later served with some distinction in the California legislature in both houses. He ran for governor in 1994 here, and that's when I got to know him. This new book is in part a dialogue with Ricardo Alarcón, who was a student revolutionary in Cuba influenced by some of the same philosophy as Tom Hayden, a guy named C. Wright Mills, as you will hear in our conversation. It's fascinating to hear how these two men met late in life and compared notes, and this book is a rich narrative based on that. I want to thank the people who make my work possible with your subscriptions to the Peter B. Collins podcast. Folks like Abby McMillan, Sharon Gadbury, and look here, Jeffrey Englund and Stacy Cox just renewed their annual subscriptions. Thanks to all of you. And if you're not a subscriber, come on over to PeterBCollins.com. You follow the link under my mugshot on the homepage. You can choose $5, $10, $20 a month or our best deal, the $50 annual subscription. And new annual subscribers get my bonus gift, a copy of the ebook edition of Pepe Escobar's latest called Empire of Chaos. By the way... Tom Hayden suffered a stroke about two months ago, and while he is completely lucid, you'll notice his speech is a little slow. So relax, sit back, and listen, because Tom Hayden has a lot to share with us today. Tom, I want to dive into Listen Yankee. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I, I learned a lot, and your your dialogue with uh, Ricardo Alarcón, I, I think, is fascinating, and really gives a great deal of context to the uh, you know the historic changes that are occurring so thank you for this book I, I I just got a whole lot out of it well thank you very much um, it took a lot of time um, I was on a tour when I had my uh, stroke so I haven't I haven't reached uh, the audience that I was hoping to but there certainly is a large um, constituency 
planning to go to Cuba for a visit or on their way, and uh, I hope that they'll pick up a copy of my book and read it on the plane. Mm -hmm. Um, It tries to explain how we got to the point of reconciliation, such as it is, but it's against the... um, the history of the 50 or 60 years of extremely dangerous antagonism. Um, And um, I chose as a partner to try to figure all this out, um, a Cuban leader who was once foreign minister and UN representative and um, the head of their national assembly, Ricardo Alarcón, who's in Havana, who was a lead um, organizer in the secret talks to finally release the the Cuban Five in exchange for Dr. Alan Gross, which was the the key that unlocked the door to uh, progress. And um, I made several trips, um, and I tried to write a balance book that would include his view of a great many historical events. Um, I interviewed national security leaders from several U.S. administrations, going back to uh, Kennedy, Johnson, uh, Carter, Clinton, and uh, Obama. Um, And in the course of writing about this, I became convinced that a secret process was definitely underway to result in reconciliation. Uh, I came to have, ironically, or humorously, I guess, but ironically, a uh, a new regard for secrecy, Peter, because <laughs> it was the most secret thing I had ever come across, because I believe both countries had a lot to lose, if anything was leaked prematurely mm-hmm. and set off a reaction from the Cuban right here or in uh, Miami or in New Jersey. Um, and um, just as I, f- as I finished the book saying that I was predicting that this was going to happen, uh, despite the people on the left who said imperialism can't be changed, And despite the people on the right who said we have so much power in Congress that we can prevent change from ever happening, just as I was getting there um, came St. Lazarus Day, December 17th, the announcement, the joint announcement by Raul Castro and Barack Obama. And so the editors, uh, who didn't believe what I was predicting either, (laughs) told me that I had to rewrite the book quickly. So I rewrote the first 50 pages to describe how recent events, including secret meetings, including a meeting with the Pope, uh, had led to this. But the rest of the book is really... um, kind of a multi-sided history of the relationship between the Cuban Revolution and the American response going back to the late 50s and through many periods that North Americans played a a key role as 
Cuba supporters or Cuba watchers. Um, for example, the late Saul Landau, mm-hmm. whom I love very much, um, died uh, just before the, the book was complete, and he was happy with the uh, conclusion I was reaching. Uh, my close, close friend, the attorney Leonard Wineglass, uh, died had, as had well. Been, he, he was on the legal team for the Chicago 8, so he goes he way back. He was on the Chicago 8, and he was, he was on the appellate team for the uh, Cuban 5 mm-hmm. reading documents in his bedroom um, at the hospital just before he passed away. Um, just a lot of people, thousands of people, went to Cuba. Uh, they risked breaking the law. They paid heavy fines. They were put on lists of suspicious people. Um, in the case of some, they were attacked violently. Um, the Library for Cuba Studies uh, in New York um, was bombed to smithereens, for example. Um, And um, many more people went to Cuba to learn for themselves or or in solidarity or on Benceremos brigades or uh, on tours than than went even to uh, Mississippi Freedom Summer, Hmm. which may be, you know, the most famous journey south of uh, any American activist in recent history uh, and it's been the subject of uh, the movie Selma and many, many books, um, but not that it's fair to compare. There's, there's never been any equivalent comparison uh, between Mississippi Freedom Summer and the thousands, probably tens of thousands, of Americans who took um, a risk of going to Cuba because they thought they were being lied to and manipulated in a um, in a war where a lot of lives were being lost and in a cause that required um, more Americans to listen and pay attention and learn. We're talking with Tom Hayden here on the Peter B. Collins podcast. His new book is called Listen, Yankee, Why Cuba Matters. And as Tom just described it, uh, after the events of 2014 and the opening that was announced by, uh, as he said, both uh, Havana and Washington, he rewrote uh, portions of the book to reflect those developments. At its core, it is a, a bit of a dialogue between two revolutionaries whose fates and, and missions were in many respects intertwined. And Tom, I learned a lot about you uh, from this book. I learned a lot about the early days of the Cuban Revolution. We're speaking here just a couple of days after the anniversary of July 26, 1953, which we is are indeed. which is where the revolutionaries uh, trace the, the origins of that movement. Uh, and and so in your your exchanges with uh, Alarcon, uh, I, I I really found it very rich. Uh, there is a warmth that you two share, but also your intellectual um, compatibility and and the, the 
the way that you interwove his commentary with yours, uh, I think is really priceless. Well, I'm, I'm glad so much to hear you say that. Um, Ricardo Alarcón deserves more study and more attention. Um, his writings don't appear that often uh, in English. Uh, you can Google some of them. Uh, but it's interesting to me that he's one of the world's most traveled and experienced diplomats. He's served in every continent in the midst of every war. He's been in, in the diplomatic resolution process of countless conflicts, including the battles in southern Africa and Angola, um, and was a lead negotiator on the release of the uh, five, and has had a long, um, interest, interesting relationship secret relationship with American diplomats, because, of course, sometimes diplomacy has to happen, even though it's illegal. And uh, I tried to describe many examples where he was flown to Canada to hide in a hotel or moved into the backseat of a car in New York and driven to a restaurant at LaGuardia Airport where he could meet with an American counterpart. Because, you know, life goes on. There are refugee crises. There are immigrant crises. There are times when you, you have to talk. Um, and, and you wonder um, how much more could have been achieved in terms of open dialogue and cultural exchange if um, these relationships were not um, carried out in such utter and total secrecy going all the way back to the uh, early 60s between John Kennedy and Fidel Castro. And Tom, one of the things that is striking, uh, you borrowed the title for your book from a book that was originally published uh, way back in 1960, by C. Wright Mills, Wright spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. And you uh, detail in the book that you wrote your uh, graduate thesis at the University of Michigan on Mills and that Ricardo Alarcon was a lifelong uh, devotee of, of his writing and thinking. And so these are this is just one of the parallels of two very different uh, revolutionary activists in, in very different contexts. But uh, as you got to know Alarcon, uh, it, it had to be quite enriching for you to discover these uh, similarities and shared interests. Yes, uh, Ricardo uh, Alarcon was uh, shared with me that he was a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Havana at the same time I was a graduate student in philosophy in Ann Arbor. Um, um, along the way, um, must have been the very early 60s, I picked up a copy of Mill's book, Listen Yankee, uh, published by Ballantyne. It's very old and yellowing, and um, if you look at the inside first page, um, there's a scrawled handwriting that says um, uh, something like, to Tom Cone Solidaridad, 
Ricardo. It's a note from Ricardo Alarcón, which had to be um, written in about 1968 on my first trip ever to Cuba, but it was a 1960 copy of the book. Um, Mills died of um, a stroke um, himself. Hmm. Uh, many say that he was tormented by... He was one of these intellectuals who's constantly in a rage and a writing fury, and he pumped out so many brilliant books in about a five-year period. But he was angry at the uh, intellectuals, um, you know, for not standing up and not being strong, and he was angry at the uh, United States embargo policy and he uh, he went to Cuba um, on a short trip very early, I think in 1960. Saul Landau was a graduate student who became his interpreter. He spent about three weeks there interviewing Cuban revolutionaries, including Fidel Castro, um, and wrote a book called Listen Yankee, which attempted to, um, in his own way, mimic the angry voice of a young 20-something Cuban revolutionary, basically listen Yankee, uh, trying to instruct the, the Yankees in the history between Cuba and the United States and the issues that had to be resolved. It was ultimately um, an optimistic book and not simply an angry book because Many questions uh, are laid out as to how uh, Cuba could be independent of the Soviet Union, Cuba could become more democratic, Cuba could be a model in the entire third world, Cuba could be an alternative to the Cold War uh, tension between the United States and Vietnam. And, and um, he finished the book and... Um, He'd had a, a stroke, and he, he was supposed to have a stay in Cuba and be treated. The Cuban medicine, even then, was so good and healthy for um, people with cardio uh, problems. They wanted him to stay. Um, he had to get back for a debate in New York with A.A. A. Burley, from the Council on Foreign Relations, who was a big hawk. And Mills was the kind of guy that pumped himself up for these showdowns. Um, and what happened, uh, uh, let it be a lesson, was that he had a fatal stroke before the debate. And um, that was the end. It was before the Port Huron Statement. It was before... Um, Mississippi Freedom Summer. Um, and Tom, let me just insert that the Port Huron Statement was largely drafted by you, and it became uh, a kind of manifesto for the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, and helped uh, inform uh, the mission of the anti-war movement as it evolved. Well, it also influenced young Ricardo Alarcón 
because in our meetings a couple of years ago, he called me to come to Havana and talk. I didn't know what it was about. His daughter, uh, Margaret, said, hey, it's just two old guys talking. Um, the longer we talked and days passed, I could tell one of the things that was on his mind is that Ricardo wanted to reconstruct the history of Cuba and the new left and the idea of a participatory democracy as a possible alternative to uh, one-party rule or one-man rule or the typical um, so-called representative democracy where special interest groups use money to pick candidates to buy ads to eventually buy electoral outcomes. He thought more participation uh, at work in politics, in culture, was the path to be on, uh, potentially for Cuba, but certainly for the United States. So um, uh, the Port Huron statement had an effect on, on him, I can I can testify to that. And did, did you have any idea before then that it had an impact in Cuba? <laughs> yes, I'm not. Um, I'm not one to make grandiose claims. I just know that in the '60s, you know, there were many arguments in the world, uh, including Latin America, about whether. Um, you know, one-party Marxist-Leninist systems were the way to go, or um, electoral systems with two parties were the way to go, or there were alternatives, some kind of alternatives, cooperatives, participatory alternatives at the education level or factory level or agricultural level, and how that could be accomplished. And there were specific incidents. I'll just tell you one. Um, when Allen Ginsberg, who was an early supporter of Fidel's revolution, went in the early mid-60s, uh, he became angry at the um, chauvinism and hostility that was shown by the Cubans towards homosexuals. He was arrested. I can't remember if he was thrown out of the country, um, but he was persona non grata, and he wrote about it, and it touched off a um, a conflict, a very uncomfortable conflict between the growing uh, gay and lesbian movement uh, in the United States in the late 60s uh, and the Cubans, because the... Uh, gay and lesbian movement felt they were revolutionary, too. They uh, were anti-U.S. about Cuba. They were supportive of the right of Cubans to have their own revolution, uh, and yet they were being treated um, as outsiders or people that were, in fact, uh, criminal in their social behavior. And they, it, it was, it was angry, and um, uh, it took many decades. But you'll notice um, in film, in writing, and in personalities, there's been a uh, 
a serious, if not profound, change in Cuban culture and policy. Uh, Raul Castro's daughter, Mariela, who's an elected official in Cuba, is a leading spokesperson for uh, LGBT rights uh, around the world and has visited San Francisco and visited New York um, and is a campaigner uh, for uh, different policies, different treatment, different attitudes, and has had a, uh, a noticeable effect uh, in democrat- democratically, persuasively, slowly changing Cuban thinking and policy. An example of how change can occur uh, equitably, you know, if people listen to each other over time, as opposed uh, through methods of confrontation or repression or human rights um, abuses and so on. So, yeah, I think that there has been a change, and without giving them more credit than history would uh, acknowledge, the um, you know, the American black movement, Chicano movement, the LGBT movement, the environmental movement has had an effect on Cuba simply because Cuba is also interested in what these progressive Americans have to say on all issues. And there have been sharp disputes, no question about it. But you can see a gradualism an opening that uh, has occurred uh, as a result of democratic exchange. And Tom, a moment ago you said that you're not big on self-aggrandizement, and I've known you for more than 20 years, uh, including when you were uh, elected here in California. You ran for governor in uh, 94. And I've always found you to be a fascinating uh, combination of, uh, extremely, uh, of extreme intelligence but an ability to read a room and to understand who your audience is. You also have a remarkable uh, ability of detachment. You're, you're very passionate about your own views and, uh, and standards. And uh, I find you very uh, accepting and often uh, uh, less judgmental than uh, many people who share your views. Uh, as you, you know, describe complicated political situations. And in, in this book, I, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, how you developed uh, some of those traits and some of those skills. And, and the book is not really an autobiography, but as you compare notes with Alarcon and uh, the impact of, of your student activism, after all, he, you know, was, was very active in the Cuban Revolution, uh, and his perch was from uh, his activist role at the University of Havana. And so, you know, I'm really glad you wrote this book, and I don't know if you wrestle uh, with uh, the the first-person pronoun, but you've never been one to uh, lead with uh, ego or uh, a lot of uh, I I, I sentences, (laughs) if you know what I mean. (laughs) Well, that's additional flattery coming from you, which I appreciate, but... um, you know, I think is um, the best we could say is that I need to ponder what you've said, and if it's true, try to um, 
explain it. One of the um, possible explanations is that um, since being in the legislature, but also seeing the um, attempted resolution of gang wars and Vietnam wars, and I've, I found myself present at um, negotiating tables. Um, I was just talking to somebody last night about the uh, rebellions around the Bobby Seal trial and New Haven back in the day, and uh, it was a very, very dangerous situation. And I remember, um, I remembered last night I was in a, a room with um, Cyrus Vance, who was a Yale official. Later Secretary of State. Secretary of State. And I guess the meeting was to... Um, to try to negotiate an agreement that that we on the left would put out the word that there should be no violence, uh, no provocation, because there were twenty or thirty thousand people there, uh, and uh, in exchange uh, we appreciated the uh, statement by Yale President Kingman Brewster that a black revolutionary probably couldn't get a fair trial in the United States. And um, that was a, uh, a gesture that I think was accurate and also calming. And I remember the next day when we went out on the green and there were 30,000 people there uh, and it was very volatile. and. Police were not in a great mood, and many in the crowd were uh, uh, very, very uh, emotional. That um, there was a meeting of marshals, you know, people, parade marshals, mm -hmm. um, about how to handle the volatility. And I did not know it at the time. I, I think I don't remember knowing it. Hillary Clinton, as a student, probably wearing a black armband and she was one of the uh, the uh, the marshals who were trying to keep order and they were having a big meeting of students from around the United States about what should be done about this situation and I was at the uh, podium for some reason and somebody handed me a slip of paper and told me to read it. And it said, read this, at, at a meeting of X number of student body presidents and leaders from across the United States, it was decided to issue a call for a national student strike starting here at Yale University uh, immediately. <laughs> and I, I just read it. Uh, <laughs> and it led to this spontaneous strike it was either the biggest or second biggest that had ever happened, and it it actually helped crumble any institutional support for the war. Um, uh, not that the war d didn't continue, but it seemed that a, uh, a withdrawal from the war was occurring from black GIs to the ghettos to... Uh, the Chicano Moratorium, 
to draft re- resistors to students. People were saying, no, we won't go, and there are various ways. And the, the funny thing that I heard later uh, last night, and I think this is true, is that Hillary herself was, acknowledges that she was there, uh, but apparently she she didn't wear a black armband or go on strike. You can call her to ask exactly what role she played, but even Hillary played some role. Um, and what was at the heart of all this, which could have been bloody catastrophe and was bloody enough, was a process of conflict resolution, which is what you started asking about, uh, that uh, it's possible to shift a, uh, a, a very dangerous conflict to political territory or cultural territory and find points of resolution uh, so that at least both sides feel that they have gained and have moved forward, have not been sold out in their objectives. Um, And um, I think that that very much was at the heart of the last three years of secret diplomacy between the U.S. and Cuba, because you can imagine how many people would be opposed to any diplomacy on all sides. And, and Tom, uh, and yet, let, let's let's break that down a little bit because uh, since yet it got done. since you mentioned Hillary, uh, the Obama administration chose to pursue rapprochement with Cuba after Hillary had stepped down as Secretary of State, and it intentionally bypassed the State Department, appointing uh, a special person in the National Security Council, and working with uh, uh, an aide to Senator Patrick Leahy. Uh, who was uh, a major go-between uh, in these secret talks. And in your book, you have a chapter about the Clinton years. We're referring to Bill Clinton. Uh, and you call it yielding to the Cuban right. And indulge me for a moment, because <clears throat> my most memorable passage of testimony from the Monica Lewinsky events and the impeachment that followed <laughs> was that Lewinsky was asked about a specific date and time when she was in the Oval Office uh, and she was entertaining the president in the way we know she did. And he, uh, despite being uh, 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 involved with her, uh, took a phone call from one of the Fon Yule brothers. The Fon Yules own the uh, Bacardi Rum Empire. Yeah, they're sugar barons. Uh, and they're big checkbook uh, writers to political parties. One Fon Yule brother uh, writes checks to Democrats, the other to Republicans. And uh, the, the Democratic brother, forgive me, I don't know his first name, uh, got Clinton on the phone and said, can you believe what Al Gore is about to do with this Everglades initiative? You've got to kill it immediately. Well, Uh, That influence is something that's very stark. In fact, uh, Gore's Everglades initiative was shelved. And the senators and members of Congress who were, uh, you know, trying the president over his affairs with Monica Lewinsky were content to accept that, well, uh, she must be telling the truth because this matches the White House telephone logs. What nobody commented on was this was an egregious example 
of a donor gaining access to the president of the United States and able to get him to change a policy <laughs> to meet the interests of this powerful Cuban exile. Well, Peter, I don't want to go on. I can I can tell you you have an uh, incredible memory and mind. Uh, I will I will add one thing. Uh, Mr. Van Hul, uh, who is one of the uh, you know, the leaders and kingpins of the Cuban right and a plantation owner of many years um, actually took part in the secret diplomacy that that brought about this resolution between the two countries hmm. by acknowledging to his right-wing constituents that he had traveled to Cuba not once or, but twice or more secretly recently, um, probably to look into what opportunities there might be to do business in a new Cuba. And this was pretty shocking. Um, this was a, a turning point for the Cuban right, which thought, of course, that they, you know, had Cuba isolated. Um, and it, it, it probably was quite a shock, maybe not, to some of the um, Cuban left or Cuban revolutionaries who used to burn down this guy's plant plantations, for all I know. <laughs> so uh, diplomacy involves characters coming forward that you would never expect because I think simply um, the, the conflict had become um, counterproductive and useless in the eyes of most parties. The sugar baron in question, Mr. Van Hool, had become old, an octogenarian maybe, um, he wanted to, um, you know, see the Cuba he grew up in. He wanted to have uh, family connections there. And he, he wanted to start a whole new existence as a binational citizen of the United States and Cuba. Sentiment, I think, plays a role. So does commerce. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know how it happened. But as to the, um, the critical uh, diplomacy, um, I think the Pope gets an enormous amount of credit, but I notice the Vatican has been underplaying his credit now that he's getting close to going to uh, the United States and Cuba in uh, September. Mm -hmm. But... Um, Senator Leahy, uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, uh, Representative Barbara Lee, yep. uh, above all, um, Tim Reeser, who is the longtime uh, aide to uh, Leahy, mm -hmm. uh, really made this happen on the American side. They kept kept talking to uh, 
Obama. They kept going to have secret meetings in Havana. Uh, Andy Spahn, who comes out of the Bay Area and is a top fundraiser for Obama, comes from the old um, anti-war movement, Indochina peace campaign days mm-hmm. in, uh, in Berkeley. And every every time he, I, I know, every time he got a chance to see the president, it was in the course of political or fundraising business. I'm sure um, he would he would uh, give a long talk about how Obama had to fix things up with Cuba, had to make it happen, mm-hmm. and. Uh, was interesting because at the end of these long conversations, uh, Obama would do something that he's quite noted for. Um, he would say, "Let's keep talking." Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to believe that those conversations, uh, in which Andy did the talking and the president did the listening were part of the solution. Um, and if, if he's listening out there today, um, I think Andy deserves um, a lot of credit. His friends should let him know that because he's going to be very quiet about it and reserved about it. He's, mm-hmm. gonna, he's a no-drama Obama type of person. But it took years of frustration. Um, and years of feeling it would never happen. So, Tom, now now um, that the opening has occurred, the embassies have been reestablished. Flags are flying. But we still have the pesky uh, Helms-Burton that, uh, you know, embeds the embargo. And we have uh, Marco Rubio uh, from the uh, uh, Miami-Cuban community uh, running for president and promising that he would reverse all these moves early in his administration should the people uh, elect him president. Do you think that these moves will hold, or will the uh, the you know forces of the, the Cuban lobby in the United States uh, ultimately prevail? It's, it would be dangerous to predict, but I think that the, the changes are, are permanent. Um, for example, in the agreement, uh, it's true that the uh, embargo remains in law because Clinton signed off on that. Um, but you can see in the uh, in the recent Senate hearings some votes that show progress towards lifting the embargo. Uh, probably because it's a lost cause. Um, For example, you can have an embargo. It does have some significance, for sure. But nevertheless, 100 or 300,000 Americans will go to Cuba um, under some category of visitor, and they will not be prevented from going. They will not face punishment or legal sanction. They will go as de facto visitors. Um, And the effect of so many Canadians, a million of them, 
and Americans, a half million to a million, you know, not to count uh, additional Europeans, spending resources and making contacts there hollows out the embargo from within, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes increasingly um, hard for anybody to defend. What are you saying? You're saying that no American citizen can go to Cuba as a tourist? Um, so I think that um, it's, a, it's a difficult argument for uh, Rubio to make, especially since a majority of the people in his constituency uh, are in favor of lifting the embargo. Uh, they're anti-communist, um, we presume, and pro-Cuba. In other words, they want to be able to go to Cuba to see family homes, to argue with people, to see relatives, to visit, to they, to complete their life's journey. Um, and uh, they're insulted that um, Rubio uh, or Ted Cruz would say, if you dare go to Cuba, any peso or penny you spend is going to subsidize a bloody dictatorship. They simply know that isn't true, and that has not been true for a very long time, and it's insulting. So, so gradually, I think uh, there will be um, uh, change. I think there will be the biggest issues will be um, uh, on the Cuban side um, how you expand individual rights, human rights, and a democratic process. Um, without opening the door to a um, kind of consumer capitalism that will make it, um, uh, you know, an ugly place. Um, and, and Tom, let me let me lift a quote here uh, attributed to um, uh, Raúl Alarcón in your book. He comments on Marco Rubio. He says, Rubio and others strongly oppose normalization for a simple reason, that Obama's policy plus our Cuban policy of eliminating our travel restrictions may lead to their biggest nightmare. You have a growing segment of Cuban Americans who left Cuba or will want to leave in the future, but who want to return to Cuba anytime they wish. It's different than the old antagonism of the 60s when a Cuban was the only person on earth who had to make a decision either to stay in the land of their birth or live forever in another country. And a little bit later, he expresses some discomfort with uh, a full economic opening of, of Cuba. And I can certainly understand that when we see what has happened with NAFTA and with the uh, looming Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, it, it, it's not in the best interest of a, of a country to just uh, you know, throw open uh, its its uh, uh, proverbial gates uh, to uh, predatory American corporations. That that is correct, and they will have to figure out um, if there's a a a way to manage it and preserve their um, you know most important uh, achievements. Uh, in education and health care. Um, I think that they'll be assisted in such a 
project or mission by um, the attitude and policies of surrounding neighbors in Central and uh, Latin America who have come a long way from their right-wing militarism, dictatorships, and torture regimes of 25 years ago. So Latin America is fairly strongly united around certain issues, uh, including recognition of Cuba. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think um, that's a safety net that helps Cuba. Um, On the other hand, uh, it doesn't seem likely that the uh, United States um, wants to give up its... um, so-called free trade prerogatives, um, you know, even though, um, you know, there's an argument that, that they're counterproductive and foolish. I mean, what is the point of having secret taxpayer funding of subversive radio and propaganda programs in Cuba? Mm-hmm. You really build a... Uh, more open Cuba through secret programs. Um, both sides are going to have to argue this, and I'm not talking here about Cuba and the United States. There will be the Leahy's uh, and the Rubios, and, you know, the Leahy's have a strong argument. He, Leahy is on record as saying, stupid, 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 or something like that, <laughs> when it was revealed that we had some secret... Um, the Twitter, the fake Twitter system? Yeah, exactly. Some secret right. um, communications program. And I, I think um, history will be very interesting to reveal what uh, Dr. Alan Gross has to say. Yes, and what he was really up to. <laughs> um, well, b- both ways, because um, he came home with a smile on his face speaking Spanish, um, endorsing the um, agreement, and um, traveling the country promoting normalization. Um, That doesn't sound like, you know, your typical spy to me. It sounds Mm -hmm. like somebody who got caught up in a bad situation um, uh, and, and, and went through um, a unique experience and very fortunately came out um, endorsing an outcome that saved his life, saved his family, um, saved his health, and... Um, allowed him to probably play a um, constructive role in having conversations with both the Cubans and the Americans behind the scenes for the next five years. Now, Tom, before we wrap up here, I want to plant a little tease for our listeners here so that they'll go buy your book and read it. Uh, you, you offer a fascinating narrative which adds important elements about the Elian Gonzalez saga. And uh, I, I really found that uh, very valuable uh, in, in your book. 
in, in closing, I'd like to ask you if if we give Obama uh, an A or an A plus uh, for his his policy of changing the failed policies toward Cuba. Uh, how do you rate the rest of the uh, hemisphere? Because in particular, uh, Venezuela and Honduras are places where we have continued a kind of gunboat diplomacy uh, sans gunboats. And uh, the uh, strong arm of, uh, of the Yankee or the gringo, uh, I think, is still pretty evident in those two countries, just based on uh, history since Obama took office. Uh, good question. You know, the um, part of the, the you know the problem that we face is systemic um, and uh, historical, and uh, I think that um, I think that Obama would like to be remembered as a person who. Um, did believe in uh, a democratic process as opposed to, um, you know, dictatorship or Stalinism, uh, but who who also wants to uh, reform the relationships uh, in a more democratic way, and who knows that the uh, American government's hands are not clean, not clean. Um, and he uh, he will try to um, avoid um, conflict or subversion with Venezuela, even though you know the Venezuelans at times are extremely hostile and uh, you know difficult to contend with, and there's a lot of problems of uh, corruption and uh, bureaucracy in Venezuela uh, and and um, I think he's well aware that the Cuban right um, has not gone away but that they they um, they were hoping uh, to be funded to um, overthrow the Venezuelan government as a way to cut off Cuba's access to Venezuelan fuel. Right, which is critical since... As a way to (laughs) then somehow overthrow the Cuban government. Mm -hmm. Um, This... Is, is not likely to work, and the only way that it would work would be in the midst of a catastrophic bloodbath, which is not in the interest of the United States, no matter how hawkish you think the United States is, not in the interest of Obama. So it's a problem that has to be managed and avoided, and... Um, at least recently, it's been toned down a little bit, but it's still there. Um, Venezuela is is caught up in a um, 
nearly a civil war with no political solution uh, in sight. Just people are aware that if it turns into a bloodbath, that's against everybody's interest. But it's that's a hell of a position to be in. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, um, everything will depend on... Um, as the book title says, um, everything will depend on the Yankee listening. Um, and Obama's been the first Yankee to listen in this whole history uh, since it began. Uh, but I'm afraid he's going to have to listen to more. There's going to be more, more to listen to. And uh, uh, I hope Leahy continues to play a great role. I hope we get... Um, you know, better educate Jim McGovern, those kinds of members of Congress, um, the Black Caucus, they have to weigh in and say this is not just about Cuba. This is about what Marti called the Americas as a whole. And it's, it's not just about the Americas. It's about immigrant rights. We're changing demographically uh, to a um, a country in which there's a potential Latino political majority from other countries. Um, it's not just about um, economics. The um, there's a need for a fifteen fifteen dollar an hour wage here, but what about the future Starbucks in Cuba? Will they get a living wage? Um, there's going to have to be an internationalization of um, uh, economic fairness um, as part of trade and foreign policy deals. And it's hard to imagine uh, that happening. It's very hard to imagine. But... um, the role of the Pope and the Vatican uh, could be decisive. Let's wait and see what happens um, in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, the Pope will have had his full opportunity to speak on climate change and on social justice and on the, uh, what he calls the dung of the devil, apparently, the, the pollution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that arises from the causes of poverty. And if if um, if somehow the um, Cubans can play a positive, constructive, informative role in the middle of this navigation, uh, and the Pope uh, continues to represent... Uh, Latin America has been the first pope to represent that that place ever. Um, a lot will depend on, um, you know, how President Obama uh, decides to um, play a role in the, in the next year or so. I assume, uh, I guess, that, you know, he and family will go to Cuba um, and it, that could be quite um, quite a game changer mm-hmm. for 
for the better. These are the worst of times as well as the best of times. We have, um, you know, the example of an earlier pope in 1963 mm-hmm. who called for an encyclical a nuclear test ban treaty, the end of strontium-90 and testing in the hemispheres had a deep effect on Catholics, a deep effect on the Kennedy brothers, um, and 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 that pope died two months later of cancer, and then the uh, the treaty was agreed to, the greatest civil rights demonstration in history to that point uh, happened in 1963. I remember being there. We thought we were on our way towards shifting from the arms race to the human race, and then came a time of um, retrenchment and repression and uh, killing, 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 yeah. killing. And um, we lost uh, King, we lost the Kennedys, we lost Malcolm. Um, and some say that it's gone away. Um, others would look at the uh, situation in South Carolina or Ferguson and say, it's coming back um, as strongly as ever, um, and that we're in a period of great danger as well as great opportunity. I'll have to leave it there. And Tom, I just want to amend your comment. If uh, Obama goes to Cuba, I hope that he will also be able to preside over the closing of Guantanamo and the <laughs> transfer of that property back to the Cubans where where it belongs. I think you're you're a, a Premature utopian there, my friend. <laughs> However, uh, these things take a while, and it's time to plant the seed. For example, um, Obama has a genuine problem. He, let's assume he wants to close Guantanamo for whatever reason, but he can't close Guantanamo. And he's, the clock is ticking on his presidency. There is one way that I've been explored... Um, it, it sounds as utopian as I'm describing you, uh, but Guantanamo should be returned to its legal um, status as part of Cuba, as part of a multi-country negotiation that results in a UN-led security force that takes charge of the remaining detainees in Guantanamo and leaves them under the control of that force on Cuban soil until they live out their natural lives. Um, I well, don't think uh, Tom, this is Tom. as utopian uh, <laughs> as um, uh, might seem the case uh, if you allowed for uh, trying to accommodate the multiple interests that have to be satisfied. The alternative is uh, Obama, Obama is beached looking at Guantanamo and wondering what to do. So I think people should work on it um, from the point of view of legacy and conflict resolution. Um, and let's see if something gets started. All right. I'll meet, right. you, I'll meet you in Utopia, Tom. 
Thank you, sir. <laughs> Tom Hayden, his new book is Listen, Yankee, Why Cuba Matters, and I highly recommend it. Thank you, Thanks Tom. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tom Hayden. As always, I appreciate your feedback. You can email Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then